Amen. At this time, I'll dismiss the children to Children's Church. Miss Amy's over here to my left and your right, and I know she'd love to have the kids in there. Uh, it has been a blessing, by the way, to be able to see the flooring done in the Family Life Center, and they're back in their uh, regular meeting room, and it's exciting to see some of that stuff getting done. It's also great to have uh, the choir do two specials this morning. They don't always do that, but it's a blessing to have them share that this morning. We welcome you to this beautiful Palm Sunday uh, service. Technically, the Easter Lenten season begins on Ash Wednesday, but this Sunday serves as an unofficial announcement that the big day is coming very soon, obviously next week. I wonder when you think about Easter, what comes to your mind? For some of us, we may think about Easter bunnies and chocolate eggs. For me, I think back to the times as a child. When my mom would dress me and my brother up in matching suits and sweaters. And just wanted y'all to see one more, I think. There you go. Uh, we were so miserable. I just want to point that out. But Easter is about much more than just bunnies and chocolate and family memories. Easter is a time for us to celebrate the most significant event in the story of Jesus Christ. But there is nothing random about the story of Christ and his resurrection. In order for the resurrection story to take place, there would be hundreds of prophecies that would need to be fulfilled. In addition, there would be building blocks that would spur on a conspiracy which would ultimately lead to Jesus hanging on a cross. In fact, I want to take a look at some of those building blocks today. Obviously, as we celebrate what's known as Palm Sunday, we're talking about the triumphal entry of Jesus as he entered Jerusalem, continuing his journey to the cross. And certainly we'll look at that in just a few moments. But how did we get to this point? For three and a half years, Jesus had wandered through the New Testament world, he spent much time in Galilee, but he also ended up in many other cities. During that time, he developed an intense following of many people for very different reasons. On the one hand, you had many people who sought out Jesus in hopes of receiving something miraculous. And Jesus often performed incredible miracles. Still others came just to listen to a voice of hope or in order to hear the words of wisdom that were significantly different than what other religious leaders of his day were offering. And then there were those who were simply curious about what he was doing and what he was saying. They just wanted to find out if this guy was real. I want you to imagine being one of the religious leaders of that day. For centuries, you've been the religious authority to the people. As such, you're important. Your livelihood is pretty secure, but now thousands of people are finding their fulfillment in Jesus. In other words, they no longer seek you out for wisdom or even for a blessing. This Jesus is beginning to annoy the religious leaders. But then something tragic and beautiful takes place. Aside from his disciples, it would seem that Jesus' closest friends would have been two ladies, Mary and Martha, and their brother, Lazarus. 
Well, one day as Jesus is out ministering to the needs of others, Lazarus would fall ill. And although they sent for Jesus, he does not return until after Jesus, until, I'm sorry, until after Lazarus has already died. Jesus did not die yet. In fact, by the time Jesus arrives, Lazarus has been dead for so long that it is likely that many hundreds of local residents have already come by to pay their last respects. They've seen the dead body. They've grieved with the family, and a burial has already taken place. And the outcry from both those who knew and loved Jesus, as well as the religious leaders who stood opposed to Jesus, that outcry was swift. In John eleven thirty two, we're told that as soon as Jesus arrived, following the death of Lazarus, he is greeted by Mary, who loved him. And she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, if that's the greeting that Mary, again, who loved him, if that's the greeting that she would give, then how much more so would the Pharisees respond? Can you picture the way they would have responded? If this Jesus were truly all-powerful, then his friend would still be alive. And in their self-righteousness, they probably perceived Lazarus as getting what he deserved. He was being punished by God because he chose to follow the wrong person. But Jesus didn't merely come to pay his respects to the grieving sisters of Lazarus. Upon ordering that they open the tomb, Jesus calls out in a loud voice, one that would have immediately resulted in silence among everyone who was present. And Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And in that moment, in the moments that immediately followed, this time of intense sorrow and grief would suddenly turn into rejoicing. It would turn into dancing. We would see the power of transformation as Lazarus would be transformed from death into life. And a very much live Lazarus walks out of the tomb. His grave clothes are removed. And many who did not yet believe in the power and the majesty of Jesus Christ would suddenly believe in him. In fact, John eleven forty five 45 says that, therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. Suddenly it became clear to these religious leaders who have been opposing Jesus, it became clear that Jesus was more than just an annoyance. He was a problem that the religious leaders would have to deal with. So they sought to have him killed. But it wasn't just Jesus who had to go. In fact, listen to the words of John 12, 9 through 12. Again, all of this leading up to the triumphal entry. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came. Not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. In a manner, you could say that the story of Lazarus and his resurrection is what paves the way to the crucifixion. The religious leaders 
could tolerate Jesus for a time, but it seems that this was the last straw. This Jesus is doing too much. We've got to do something to not only stop Jesus moving forward, but we also need to get rid of the evidence. We can't leave Lazarus alive because too many people will still believe in Jesus simply on account of what Jesus had done for him. Let me tell you that there has always been something incredibly powerful about the power of a transformed life. Now, I know that we're talking about the literal, the physical body of Lazarus being brought back to life. So yeah, that would definitely get the attention of others. But did you know that it can be incredibly powerful when you see somebody spiritually moving from death into life? But in order for that to happen, it must be a complete transformation. Can you imagine Jesus calling Lazarus out of the grave only to watch him walk out and suddenly drop dead all over again? It wouldn't be much of a transformation, now would it? Or maybe he would come out and he's got tubes hooked up to him and he's on life support and he never really gets the opportunity to live again. I ask that question because far too often the church has seen many who seem to experience the transformation of Jesus Christ, only to see them quickly go back to their old way of life. In fact, as we consider the events that would take place in the coming days, I want you to consider two groups of people. We know that on the event of the triumphal entry, what we celebrate on Palm Sunday, there will be crowds of people who will cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna to the King. They will rejoice over the coming of a long-awaited Messiah. Yet in just a few days, many of these same people will find themselves in another crowd of people as they cry out, crucify him. Well, how can the same people be found in both crowds? Perhaps that is because they chose to worship him for a time, only to turn back to their old way of doing things shortly thereafter. In our sermon notes, I asked the question, which crowd will you be in? My guess is that many of us, if not all of us, would be in the crowd that shouted Hosanna to the king. But my fear is that many of us would also be in the crowd that would cry out, crucify him. Now, I know that what I'm calling you to today may seem pretty extreme. But here goes anyways. I am asking you to not just be a better person. I don't want you to just look the part of a Christian. I don't want you to just be a better version of yourself. Instead, I am calling you to be completely transformed by the work of Jesus Christ. To move from death into life. Paul said that I am crucified with Christ and therefore I no longer live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And I believe today that what the world needs to see is people who have been crucified with Christ and now no longer live, but it is Christ who now lives in us. 
I want you to know that the only way that you can be completely transformed, moving from death into life, is to fully surrender your life to Jesus Christ. That includes not only the confession of sin, but a daily decision to live in accordance with that transformation. For me, it means waking up every morning with the prayer that says, Lord, help me to live more like you today than I did yesterday. It doesn't mean that I'm perfect because everyone in this room knows better, but it does mean that I am a work in progress and hopefully I am making progress every single day. Let's take a look at the triumphal entry for a few moments. I I think you understand already the triumphal entry is actually recorded in all four Gospels. This is an important moment in Jesus' story. I'm going to read today from Luke chapter 19. I've already read a little bit from John chapters 11 and 12, and clearly that leads into the triumphal entry as well. Based on what we've read, we know that Jesus is coming from Lazarus' hometown, maybe even his house, about two miles away from Jerusalem. And many are traveling to Jerusalem at this time as they prepare for the annual Passover celebration. Add to this the fact that so many are simply longing to be with Jesus. You have those who are with him at Lazarus' house, but you even have those who have already traveled into Jerusalem telling others about what Jesus has done. Now with many of them coming back to see if Lazarus is really still alive. And the result is you have a monstrous crowd of people that are out in the streets. Although the passage here in Luke chapter 19 really begins in verse 28, we're going to begin reading today in verse 35. The disciples have already brought a cult to Jesus, and this is what it says. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is he is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. In the Gospel of John, it actually uses the phrase, Hosanna, Hosanna to the king. It is a celebration of what God has done and who he is. So here we have this parade of people in the streets. There are no floats, there are no marching bands, no dance teams, no Santa Claus on the back of a fire truck. It is just Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and he is marching to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. You know, there's a bit of irony to this image The purpose of the Passover celebration was to celebrate God's deliverance of the Israelites many generations earlier as they escaped bondage from Egypt. If you'll remember, God used Moses to inflict a series of 10 plagues upon the people of Egypt. But it was the last plague that completely crushed the people of Egypt's spirit. 
Exodus 12 tells us that on a given night, an angel of death would pass over the entire land of Egypt. And as this angel passed over, the firstborn son in each household would die. But there was a provision that would allow Israelite children to avoid death. Listen to Exodus 12, verse 12 to 14. It's just kind of giving us a background why Jesus was going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. This is what it says. On that night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. What blood are we talking about in that passage? It is the blood of a lamb. Well, here we are now, generations later, and we see Jesus Christ, whom John the Baptist has already identified as the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And he is traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. But Jesus doesn't come as many would have expected him to come. It was not uncommon for a king to come riding into Jerusalem celebrating a victory. In fact, there were seasons where conflict was so common that you almost expected the king to show up any day now. They would ride in on a beautiful stallion and the people would come quickly and they'd see him riding this horse and wielding a sword surrounded by victorious soldiers carrying with them plunder which they had acquired from their enemies. But this one is very different. Jesus isn't riding on a stallion, nor is he wielding a sword. Instead, he comes in riding humbly on the colt of a donkey, one that, according to one gospel, had never been ridden before, suggesting that he was not even a well-trained donkey. Why does that matter? Please note that Jesus was not coming to town to be exalted as a victorious king. For sure, he would win a great victory for all of humanity. And the events that have taken place in the weeks leading up to this likely caused the crowd to assume that he was coming into Jerusalem to assume his position as king, as Messiah. In recent days... Jesus has kind of opened up the door for that. And you understand why. In the early years of his ministry, when any individual received his healing, he would tell them, don't tell anybody what I did. Don't tell anybody who I am. But he's begun to allow people to refer to him as Messiah and King. Now they see that he has the power over death, and it seems like it's time to celebrate a victorious king. But Jesus didn't come to Jerusalem to be exalted as a victorious king. He came to become the sacrifice for all of humanity, to be the sacrificial lamb, just like in the Passover story. You know, part of what makes this so interesting to me is the fact that Jesus could have ridden into Jerusalem and demanded an unconditional surrender of the Romans 
and the religious elites. He could have demanded it. Not only had he demonstrated his power to do what only God could do, but he had the support of 10,000 angels whom he could have called down at any moment. In other words, Jesus could have forced himself upon all of humanity. After all, we're told that there is coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And on that day, even those who strongly oppose Christ today will be forced into submission. That's not the way that Christ wants to come. He doesn't want to force himself upon anybody. He wants us to choose him. I'm reminded of a familiar verse of scripture that also is depicted in a familiar painting that I think you'll see on the screen. I'm talking about Revelation 3.20. It's the Lord speaking and he says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Please note that he's not beating down your door, nor is he marching in on his own. When I was a teenager, I had a friend who at the age of 13, he already had a full beard and he looked like he was a 30-year-old man. Well, he would come over to our house and he would just walk in without knocking on the door, which is fine because normally we were in the living room. Can you imagine the surprise of my mom that first time that he did that while she was sitting in the living room. She thought a grown man had just walked in the door and we were about to be in trouble. Well, Jesus is not just walking in. Instead, he is knocking with the hopes that you will let him in. We're talking about the king of kings, the one who could force his way in at any time. Yet instead, he waits for you and for me to invite him in. What a beautiful image of grace. You know, he could force his way in at any moment. He could show up and every knee would bow, not because we love him, but because we have to do it. But he chooses to give us that option. In the triumphal entry story, there is no question as to whether he is the king. In fact, the people cry out in celebration of his coming. They shout, Hosanna, Hosanna to the king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They are declaring that he deserves our praise. He is God. And Jesus makes no attempt to stop them from this declaration. Immediately, the Pharisees recognize what's going on, and they even object to it. They want Jesus to stop his followers, rebuke them. But instead, Jesus says, I tell you that if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out in their place. I heard someone say recently, I don't want any stones crying out in my place. What Jesus is saying is that these people are right. I am the great I am. I am the Lord of heaven and earth. I am worthy of praise. What he is saying is that I have the authority right now to force you into submission. But instead, I choose to humbly 
approach Jerusalem. Let me just pause for a moment to remind you that there is coming a day when Jesus will not come to town riding on the colt of a donkey. Instead of humility, he will come with power and might. Revelation describes him as one who rides on a white stallion and he will bring justice. I encourage you as strongly as possible today to make sure that you respond to his knocking before he comes with his sword. Let me show you one last thing this morning from the triumphal entry story. It's found in verse 41, which says, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He would then go on to prophesy about the coming judgment that will eventually fall upon Jerusalem. And that prophecy would even be fulfilled in about 70 A.D. But his weeping over the city of Jerusalem reveals much more than just their coming destruction. It reveals his heart. You see, even though this city would oppose Jesus, even though there were many, there were many who wanted to see Jesus dead and they would cry out, crucify him, he still loved them. And it had to break his heart to see his loved creation turning their back on him. Here they are in the very presence of the creator. And instead of embracing him with love and celebration, in just a few short days, they would want him dead. Can you understand why he wept on that occasion? You know, there are actually only two occasions where we see Jesus recorded as to weeping. He weeps at the death of Lazarus. It's a passage we're very well familiar with. Simply as he grieves alongside Mary and Martha, he saw their pain and sorrow. He saw their broken hearts. But on this occasion, it appears that he weeps because it is his heart that is broken for the lost people there in Jerusalem. It's not all that different from the heart of God that is portrayed in the Old Testament as well. Sometimes we perceive the Old Testament God as being brutal and angry, eager to judge humanity. And certainly there are some times where his judgment and wrath are poured out on humanity. But actually the Old Testament God is the same God that we worship in the New Testament. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. I think of the people of Nineveh as an example. This was a Gentile city that was full of sin and immorality. They deserved the wrath of God. But God wanted to offer them grace instead. And so he sent a servant, a reluctant servant, by the way. But he sends Jonah to proclaim the need for repentance. Jonah loved the idea of repentance and grace as long as it was associated with the people of God, the Jewish people. Nineveh was not in that category. Yet God loved them in spite of who they were. The result, after Jonah brings this message the result is that they are spared of God's wrath. God did not want to punish them. He wanted to rescue them. 
God's heart is still the same. Whether we're talking about the Old Testament, the stories of God's grace being extended to Gentiles and Jews, or we're talking about the New Testament, when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, knowing that his crucifixion is about to take place, God had a heart for the people. When Jesus hung on the cross and he cried out to his father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Man, if anything, that's the moment where you could see and you might would even justify it if Jesus would have cried out, give them what they deserve. We would look at it and say, well, that's the right thing. But Jesus prayed for them. It's the same prayer that we would see later from Stephen. Forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. What this reveals is a heart of love and compassion. What I want you to know today is that regardless of where you've been, regardless of what kind of sin has dominated your life, God still has that same incredible love for you that he had for the people of Jerusalem, that he had for the very same people who would nail him to a cross and mock him while he hung there. Say, I've never done anything that bad. Well, think about that for a moment. If God would love them so much that he would weep over them, knowing the things that they would do and the ways that they would betray him, you look at your life and you say, well, I've never done anything that bad. I will guarantee you his love for you is just as great. He cares for you. I know sometimes it seems like when we think of God, we think of him as a punisher. I know as a teenager, I kind of viewed God as this old man with a long gray beard, but he had a whip in his hand. And he was ready to punish me the moment that I committed sin. But today I see him. He may still have that whip in his back pocket, maybe, I don't know. But I see him weeping over my sinful choices. I want you to know today that God's love is just as great for you as it's ever been. And he desires that we be made right with him. He is going to the cross. His purpose of going to Jerusalem, yes, he will become the Passover lamb, the sacrifice for all of humanity. But the real reason that he came was to die. It wasn't to celebrate a tradition. This was to die. He came so that he could make a difference for all those whom he loved. And that includes you. Maybe you're holding on to some type of sin. Maybe there is something that is dominating your life. Maybe you simply need to say, God, I am sorry. I know you love me. Forgive me. Let me be changed to move from death into life. And I don't mean just for this week, but every moment forward, every moment forward as you live for him, you live as a testimony to the saving work of Jesus Christ, just like Lazarus did. Every day that he lived, he was a testimony to what Jesus Christ could do. I pray that you would be that living testimony to what Jesus Christ can do for the world around us. I don't know what's in your heart today, but I know that grace and love and mercy are being offered to you right now. If you would, bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, we know that in your word, 
we see a heart for your people. Lord, you love us. That's not even up for discussion. You have been so faithful to us. Yes, we still have to go through difficult days, and there are things that happen, and we don't know why they happen. And sometimes life seems really hard, but you love us more than life itself. Father, as we come before you today, I pray that you would help us to respond to your offer of grace. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. Lord, I pray that just as Lazarus was resurrected to physical life, I pray that every individual in this room and anyone who's watching online, I pray that right now that we would be restored spiritually from death to life. Father, I pray that you would help us to be a people who are constantly aware of the fact that the world is watching. Lord, may we, may we walk in such a way that they would know that you are real. Father, thank you for the triumphal entry. Thank you for this first coming of our Messiah. And we look forward to a second coming. When you don't come riding on the colt of a donkey, but rather you come to claim that which is yours. May we be included in that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to encourage you, next Sunday we do have additional activities. Uh, I know that you heard Jerry mention it earlier, but we have a sunrise service. I want you all to know when, when we were first putting the schedule together, my mom had it down for 6 o'clock in the morning. We looked at the schedule. Uh, the sun's supposed to rise at 7.08 next Sunday. So we decided, let's just back it up to 7 o'clock. So 7 o'clock next Sunday, we're going to have a sunrise service. I will tell you, someone asked me, do you just preach the same message in each of the services? Not for Easter. So what I encourage you to do, come for the sunrise service, join us for breakfast, stick around for church again at 9.15. And you will be blessed. I believe that we will be blessed because you're here as well. So looking forward to a great time of uh, worship. And hopefully, actually, if you can, bring someone else. We're going to be talking not only about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is, by the way, the cross is not what the Easter story is about. It's the empty tomb. That's what we're going to be looking at next week. And the second coming of Christ. Because we have a hope. It's not just what happened 2,000 years ago. It's what's coming. And we need to be looking forward to that too. So I encourage you, bring someone else with you. It'll be a great time for us to worship this Easter. Thank you for being with us today. And go in peace.